Hi, Trevor Brown here, president of CAMP. I was honored to join fellow board member of CAMP, attorney Jay Levine, in the first week of March for a board certification course he put on. Jay has been an attorney for over 40 years and is an invaluable resource in my opinion. He actually wrote parts of 718 specifically on insurance, parts that say uh, the master policy needs to cover these items, drywall out, and the items that need to be excluded are the responsibility of the unit owners, needs to fall on an HO6 policy. Without further ado, I present Jay Stephen Levine from the Levine Law Group. A bit about the firm. Uh, I've been practicing law since 1976, doing association work on a, a consistent basis and as my main area um, since 1980. So I'm hitting close to year 40. I've seen a lot of changes, especially in the Condominium Act, because um, I helped to write some of it. We'll be talking about some of those provisions today. We're going to start with the board certification. And the first topic, as you go on the beginning, is budgets and reserves. You want to look at the bylaws just to make sure it's the board and not the members who adopt a budget. I have a couple of associations where the member is not the board. Not a good idea, but that's the way it was written, adopts the budget. You want to see if there's anything specific in the documents regarding adoption that might be over and above what's in the condominium law. You also want to make sure you know your year that you operate. Most of the time, it's the calendar year. But other times, it could be a fiscal off the calendar year, if that's what your documents say. You have to prepare a budget annually, although a lot of documents say if you're late, it rolls over to the next year until you adopt the budget, you're really then amending the budget. It's a budget amendment because the old budget started as the new budget. I'm not a fan of rollovers. Uh, if your documents say you have a rollover right, I think you're okay. If it doesn't say that, make sure before the January 1, if that's your year, you have your budget adopted. What you do is you list all the expenses and the statute does address, uh, I'll talk about in a moment, the, the itemization of expenses. I've seen a lot of budgets that don't comply with the requirements. The state gets a lot of complaints regarding financial matters, including budgeting. You don't want to be in a state complaint. Hopefully today, you'll make sure you won't. Now, you could have, if you want, a budget committee. If you have a budget committee, that meeting of the budget committee must meet the same formalities as a board meeting, which means 48-hour posted notice, agenda, people have the right to be there and participate. So that's the same formality as um, the uh, board meeting for that particular committee. You don't have to have one. If you have one, follow the formalities. I'm, I'm, what I'm going to do, because with a size crowd like this, we won't get done if I, can, if I take questions throughout. Um, I'm going to stop at each segment, entertain a couple of questions. There will be a break in about an hour and a half. You can ask more. At the end, you can ask. So you'll have plenty of time. But let's jot down your questions. When I get through budgets and reserves, I'll take questions then. So note your question, and I'll let you know. Um, you'll be the first one to ask a question. Um, as you know, a budget meeting is a board meeting, so it's open to all owners, and they can participate. As you know, there's a 14-day notice required. It's a notice by mail and by posting. 
However, if your documents say a longer time frame, like 30, and that used to be the law way back when, so older documents may have that, you have to give the 30, not the 14. The theory is that the notice is for the protection of the owners to get the maximum notice. And if there's a right given to the owners in the documents, that is um, not quite what the statute says, but it's more protective, you go by your bylaws. So if you have 30 in your bylaws and you give 14, you're creating a defect in that process. You can send the, um, the notice by hand delivery or by mail and by email as well if the owner signed a statement indicating that email notice is okay. So you create a form, they sign it, you know they are email candidates. If they don't have it signed in writing, then you can't. You need to have an affidavit from whoever makes the mailing to attest to the proper notice that was given. Now let's talk about if you have to really up your budget a lot. And it goes up more than 15% from this year to the last year. Is that, is that a problem? Uh, anyone here in a developer-controlled association? Okay, 15% is a cap. But in an owner-controlled association, it's not a cap. You can do what you want in raising the budget. However, if it goes up more than 15%, and you're pretty much comparing the operating to operating, because reserves don't count in the computation, if it's um, more than 15% and 10% of the owners sign a petition saying we don't like it, make, make you call a meeting to maybe redo or revise your budget. If you get that 10% application, then you have to hold a meeting. And you have to hold it within 60 days after you've adopted the budget. And of course, you need to do the 14-day notice or longer if your documents say 30. Now, let's talk about what happens if um, you mail out the, um, the budget, the notice and the budget, which has to be a copy with the notice, the notice with the budget. Um, what if in that time period of 14 or 30 days, come to the meeting and you realize, maybe from owner input, or you realize because something came in in that time frame that tell you that your budget estimate is wrong. The question is, can you make revisions which may even result in a greater amount that's due than what was sent out. How many people here think you have leeway at the meeting to make changes, raise your hand? Well, you do have leeway. So most people didn't realize that, obviously. Now, if when you mail it out, you knew it was wrong, that's a problem. You don't make changes. But if during the time frame, and it doesn't happen often, but owners may come to the meeting and give you input. They may say, uh, I think the legal budget is too high. Don't like that one, but you do. And you make a change. That's okay. As long as in good faith at the mailing time, this is the budget you believe should be set forth. Now, this may sound a little silly, but at the top of the budget, you don't just say 2018 budget. That won't fly. January 1 through December 31, 2018. You have to put the period at the top. 
If you don't, a state complaint, they'll make you fix it. Very easy to do. You obviously have um, the estimated revenues that can come in from different sources, assessments being the key revenue, and the expenses. Take down this site, it's 718.504, paren 21, you're on page two. That lists all of the categories of expenses. And then under those categories, you're gonna have subcategories that you're gonna create. Stay as true as you can to the outline in that statute, because the law says you need, not should, you must follow that format. Now, if something doesn't apply, you put NA, not applicable. Now, of course, the minutes of the board meeting must reflect the board adoption of the budget. You attach a copy as part of the minutes, so you have record of what was adopted. And that's how you um, document what the board did at that board meeting. Now, what if it turns out halfway through the year, you're running short, and you don't want to levy a special assessment or you have limitations in your documents that stand in your way, you can amend that budget by following the same formality as the board adopted the budget in the first place. So you're allowed to do an amended budget. Usually it's for the quarters or months that have yet to come because you're doing it prospectively, not retroactively to January 1. But you do have that authority because the administrative rules say you can. So you don't have to see budget amendment language in your documents. The administrative rules that govern condominiums creates that ability that you have. Since you can adopt, you can amend. Now on page three, we talk about reserves. You have to show reserves for capital expenditures and deferred maintenance, like it or not, and you must contain fully funded numbers. Like it or not, the board has no discretion but to present a budget with fully funded reserves. There's three mandatory reserves. One is roof replacement, building painting, and resurfacing of paved areas, including sidewalks. Those are your minimum three. If any asset, this is all about assets, costs more than 10,000 to replace, like you have a seawall, that's gotta be there, um, sometimes people do elevators, but do you have to really break up the components in the building? Probably not. But if it's something you ex expect to spend a lot of money on, you can put it in there. Um, but anything that is more than 10,000, you must. If it's less than 10,000, you still may. You can add to the statutory reserves as long as there's a useful life because assets have useful lives and remaining useful lives. So for instance, if you want to put in an insurance deductible reserve, that is not a reserve for deferred maintenance capital expenditures. There's no useful life with that. That's more of an operating reserve that goes into the operating section of the budget, not at the end in the reserve portion of the budget. Now you fund reserves, when you think about it, one check comes in for both Operating and reserve monies equals the total that has to be paid. You're allowed to take that check and put it into your operating account, but you gotta get rid of it and put it in your reserve account uh, within the same time frame it takes for you to collect your assessment. So if you're monthly, you have a month to transfer it. If it's quarterly, you have a quarter to transfer it. 
You can't leave it in the operating account beyond those time frames, or you're guilty of commingling, and no commingling allowed, of reserves and operating funds. Well, once you write down a question, um, when I get done with this section, which is not too long, then I'll open it for questions. Now, how do you calculate reserves? The reserves are basically, the theory of reserves is you have enough money on hand in the year of need. So the general um, calculation is you take how much it's going to cost to replace, let's take the roof, 50000 to replace, minus money on hand already. If you have none, because you waived every year, minus zero, divided by the remaining useful life. That's the straight line method by category. That's how you compute what it costs. Um, now, realize that these um, costs can change. Useful lives can change. And of course, money on hand will maybe increase, so minus a higher number. So every year, you do a calculation. It's annually. So you account for any changes in costs. If you've done a lot of roof repairs, let's say, so the lifespan of your roof has now been increased, the bottom number, denominator, is now going to be a higher number because you're more years away from replacement. If it turns out your roof's poorly performed during the year and your useful life is less than you thought, that denominator number is now going to be less in the following year. That's how you do it. Now, pooled method, it's a little bit complicated, and a lot of times the accountant gets involved in helping you. Instead of having individual categories, you create a pool. Not one you swim in, but it's called a pool because you're grouping together assets. And the calculation is pretty much you take the latest, longest useful life, and there's a way to factor it in. Frankly, it's complicated. I let accountants do it rather than me. So if you want to go the pooled method, you have that option. If you want to go with the straight line method, you have the option. Now, let's say you have you want to start pooled reserves. So you have the, you're starting to create that pool. And you have these straight line reserves that you've adopted and have money in over time. What do you do? Can you take the straight line and throw it into the pool? You can with a member vote, okay, but not as a board. Now, instead of having to do that and get a member transfer vote, we'll talk about that shortly, just spend out of your straight line reserves. Deplete them because you're building up a pool. So you use them up for the purposes earmarked and then continue to create your pool. That does not take a member vote. You're not transferring anything. You're just depleting what's already there. That's probably the simplest, but if you want to have immediate use of all those straight line monies in the pool, we're going to talk about the member vote required to make that happen. Let's talk about if you don't like the high number in the budget. Because reserves, particularly if you haven't been reserving because you're waiving, um, you have um, a very little, you have a little bit of reserves, but you want to know if you want for that year, you don't want it. Now, it's up to the board to decide whether the members get the opportunity to waive. It's not a mandate, 
Law doesn't say every year it's an, a mandated annual event. It's not. It's up to the board looking at the reserve picture to decide do we want to continue to grow our reserves and not have a member waiver, and that's your choice. You, the board, have that choice. If you feel the members would want the waiver and you want to accommodate that, then you would put it on the agenda of a members meeting because the members are the only ones that can waive reserves. And that's a majority vote at the meeting, including proxies. Now, keep in mind something. Banks are looking at reserve picture for associations when people go to borrow and get mortgage loans. Um, I bought a place um, about two and a half years ago, and they said to me, because they had never loaned in that community before, that we're not going to look at you and your credit until we're happy with the association's health. So they had to be comfortable with that association's picture, and they did, even though the reserves were light, but there were other positive things. But banks are looking at reserve balances, and a lot of times they're going to decide not to lend. If, you can't lend, if they won't lend, you're not going to make sales. So there's a double-edged sword. You want to keep the maintenance fees lower so you can sell. But if they're higher, you'll have more loans being made. So it's one of those catch-22s. Um, I'm not a fan of waiver, but associations do it all the time. And the law lets you if you feel that's good for your group. Now, if it turns out you have, a, you have your meeting of the members and you don't achieve a quorum, or you have a quorum, but you don't get enough votes to make it pass. That's it for now. The reserves go in place the way they were put in by the board. Remember, fully funded budget. You can try again. The state takes the position. You can try again. But at least for now, um, you have fully funded reserves if you don't get that vote in place. Now, your reserve funds and any interest incurred on those funds can only be used for the earmarked purpose. If you're straight line, it's asset by asset. If it's pooled, it's the sum of the assets in the pool. In order to be able to use them for something unrelated, you need to get a member vote. The same vote to waive is the same vote to transfer to another purpose. So that's how the vote works. If you want to use the funds, maybe you have um, a large expense that has not unrelated whatsoever to your reserve categories, and you need to spend the money, but there's not enough in the operating, um, that may be something you need to transfer and get that member vote. Interesting issue, and this just came up. Let's assume you have a roof reserve, but you're also borrowing money, we'll talk about that in a while, to pay for that roof project. Can you pay the loan payments out of the roof reserve? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Because interest and principal of a bank is not roof. Now you can make an argument, the purpose behind the loan is the roof, but it's a little bit of a disconnect. It's one of those gray, and there's a lot of gray. I wish there was more black and white in this business, but there are still gray areas because you have a legislature that does its thing, and you have judges that decide and arbitrators how they want sometimes. But I think you have an argument. You can use the funds to pay the loan, 
but there is an issue whether that would be a disconnect. Now, to the extent that you're going to waive reserves or transfer from one purpose to another, the statute, and I did not bring the site with me, tells you in bold letters what you have to put on the proxy and also what has to go on the ballot that you distribute at the meeting. And it's got to be the largest print on the page. So it's going to be big, big type if you have other large type on the page. So that has to be met in order to have a valid waiver or transfer of vote. Realize it's only annual. It's an annual. You don't waive forever. You could do it year by year, but the waiver is only budget year specific. I'm going to take questions, a few, before we go on to the next topic. And you had a question? Uh, you mentioned the um, budget committee. Does that just have to be board members? Or can it be uh, just members? That it could be anyone you want, any member you want. It doesn't have to be board members. You know, that's more of an accountant bookkeeping question, what's good accounting practice. Um, I think you could just pay it out of the reserve account because that's where the money is. And no, I don't, the law doesn't really address that subject. So it's, um, you have to operate with good accounting practices. So your bookkeeper slash accountant would tell you if there's a preferred way. But I think I would just take it out of reserves. But you may want to make sure your accountant doesn't have, has a reason why it should be different. Yes? Yeah, we have like a pool reserved for elevators. Can that be moved to roof? What's in the pool? Just elevator? That's not a pool then. If it's one asset, it's not a pool. A pool is a combination of assets. There's several in that pool, right? But it's not the one you're talking about, correct? If it's something, if it's unrelated. But the, if the elevator is one of the assets in that pool, you can use anything that's, the, that's listed in the pool. So if you have five assets, you can cross-spend for the five. If there's a sixth item that's not in the pool, you, you need to transfer the money for that. You, you always need a vote to transfer um, from one purpose to an unrelated purpose. Always need that vote. Anytime you're taking money out of reserve, or you need, you need money and you want to use your reserves, and the reserves don't cover that item, it's something different, you can't spend out of the reserve except for the earmarked listed purposes. If you want to go outside that, you need to get a vote of the owners to transfer that money into something that's not in that pool or not in the reserves. You, you only can spend for the earmarked purposes. To get around that, you need to go to the members and get their permission to basically draw down your reserves and use that money for another purpose to avoid a special assessment. That's the reason why it's often done. Yes? So in that vote, the majority vote is needed, but is it of the owners that are in attendance for the meeting or is it via proxy? It's a majority of your quorum that you've established in person plus proxy. 
So if you have a 100-unit condominium and you have 60 votes represented, you need 31. Okay? In the far back. That's okay. A board can create a pool without going to the members. It's once it's created and you want to spend money from that pool for something unrelated, that's where the vote gets triggered. But the board has the choice at its discretion whether to go with a straight line method or the pool method. That's not a member choice. Only when you're taking a reserve category to spend for something unrelated, but the initial creation of the pool reserves is a board decision, board choice, members have no say. Yes? Question, um, when exactly, what is the criteria if you're doing a project on site, whether you take it out of the reserve or the operating budget? Um, you can always pay for a reserve type item out of operating. You're allowed to. As long as you have the money and there's an, um, it's budgeted for or you have enough of a surplus, you, don't, you have a choice. The only time you don't have a choice is when you invade reserves for, to spend for an unrelated purpose. That's when you have to go out and get a member vote. But in your case, I, I think you're okay. Okay, we're gonna go now into the next topic, uh, starting on page seven, which is general association operations. As you know, since you're a condominium association, you're governed by Chapter 718. You're also corporations, and typically not-for-profit, although I do have a few profit corporations. So you're governed by the corporate law that applies to your type of corporation. Now, when you see the word in the documents, the association has this right. The association may approve. What does that mean? It means the board. Why? Because the board operates the condominium. Unless the documents say that certain kinds of decisions, when they use association, requires member vote, like amending documents, let's say, possibly to borrow money, to maybe make special assessments. So where the documents actually say member vote required, member vote. If it doesn't say that, then association means the board, because the board um, governs the condominium. As you probably know, you as directors and officers and management, managing agents have a fiduciary relationship to the owners. And that creates a high degree of trust and care, maybe more so than if it was your own for-profit business that you own and you're successfully operating. You must act, and this is gonna sound obvious, but this is the standard, and nicely, director liability is limited very hard to find a director personally liable. We'll talk about the kind of situations where you would. But generally, as long as you act in good faith, you exercise ordinary care of an, of an ordinary prudent person, you don't have to always be right. You even can be negligent, but you're trying your best. That is not a liability event for you. It may be a liability for your association, but it's not a liability for you individually. Now. Does anyone here not have directors and officers liability insurance or DNO insurance? Raise your hand. Okay, you, if you don't have it, you gotta get it. It's not expensive. And here's what's nice. It doesn't just cover where the association directors are sued. 
if the association is being threatened because of the actions of the board, DNO will come in more than not. So if you don't have DNO coverage, you got to have it. I would not serve on a board if I didn't have that coverage in place. It's usually about 1,500, maybe 2,000. I know the prices are going up. Higher than that? Even less. So don't try to save the money. You got to have the protection because it protects you as directors as well. Now, here's the kind of things that you're looking at potential liability, and this is um, before we hit page eight, and that is what I call look in the mirror and I know I acted badly. That's the standard I call, that's an easy way to say it. Here's the kind of things where you're considered bad and you should have liability. You commit a crime and it impacts the association. You derive an improper personal benefit. This is all done for your own personal motive. Um, acting recklessly, um, acting with malicious purpose, acting with uh, wanton and willful disregard for the rights of others and property of others. That's look in the mirror, I did badly, you have personal liability. So I'm sure no one in this room will ever look in the mirror and see those things. So you should be okay. On page eight, directors at a meeting must vote or abstain. If the director is silent and you have to take a roll call by director and document their votes in the, in the minutes, if they don't vote at all, that's a yes. So if you don't want to take a position, abstain. If you don't abstain, uh, Mr. Smith, how do you vote? Um, I'm not voting. That's a yes. If it says I'm abstaining, you, reckon, you record abstain. Now realize an abstention is like a no when you have to carry the votes of a majority of the board because abstentions you, you don't consider. So that could defeat you getting a majority necessary to take an action. Directors cannot vote by email, by written consent. However, the directors may communicate by email among themselves and, but cannot take a vote and make a final decision. Now let's be frank. You may not vote, but you all have decided what you're gonna do. So you go to the meeting and say, yabba dabba do, it's over. And if I'm sitting in the crowd saying, whoa, hold on. Uh, when did we talk about this? Oh, we did it by email. Um, how do I know you didn't sit in a room as a quorum, which is a violation of law, and talk about it? So I would pretend if you have to, to have a conversation, so people don't feel it's a railroad job. You have to realize this public communications and public relations, you're public relations people in part, so you don't want people to think that you're not having an open discussion because owners have a right to participate in those agenda items. On pages 9 through 13, I list a lot of powers, and I'm not going to follow the outline in this segment of board certification as much as I will on the fair housing. So I'm not going to hit all the powers, but you can read them on your own. Um, my assumption I made is you don't want to have me stand up here and read my outline. What good is that? Because you can read yourself. So I tend to depart from it in this particular session, and no two board certification classes are the same, because I hit different topics and maybe skip over some others. Some of the powers I want to discuss, 
Let's assume you want to charge a fee for use of the common elements, like the clubhouse for a party. You have a rental charge. That has to be in the documents. That has to be in the documents to charge a use fee. Now, what if it's not a true use fee, but it's a damage deposit, like for the elevator and maybe for cleanup of the clubhouse? Can you charge a deposit which gets refunded? That's not a use fee, but I prefer to see that right in your documents as opposed to in your policy or rules. Voting certificates, defined by law, but not required by law. But most documents require it. What's a voting certificate? It depends on what the sec section says on that. It's usually where you have multiple owners. Husband and wife could be uh, multiple owners. Or a corporation or other entity. In order to vote, there must be a written document called a voting certificate signed by the owners choosing which one of them will be the voting member, which you can change from time to time, but until changed, so a husband and wife, and the husband is on the certificate, and the wife shows up at the meeting, no, no, sorry, you can't vote, you're not on the certificate. If you have a voting certificate requirement and you don't follow it, that's a meeting defect. And that could, that could result in overturning everything you did at that meeting. So I have one association that absolutely does not want to include a voting certificate because they don't want, because they don't want. I said, well, that's a problem, but it's okay. We'll take the risk. When I give advice, I don't tell you what to do. That's not my job. I'm not your parent to tell you what to do, and you're not children. But I give advice, but you make the decision. You get the big bucks, luckily, <laughs> to make those decisions. And even if you get a raise this year, you're still making those decisions, so I just advise. I can say, here are the negative ramifications of that decision, and the board will make a decision ultimately what's right, what's wrong. Q&A sheets, often known as the questions and answer sheet. Sorry about that noise there. I'll talk a little louder. Um, does anyone here not have a question and answer sheet on file? Raise your hand. You're in violation of law. But let me tell you the ramifications of being in violation of law. What's the purpose of the Q&A sheet? First of all, it summarizes the restrictions. But also, it's one of the documents that the seller gives to the buyer in order for the closing to happen. Until that Q&A sheet is delivered to, from, to seller and then the buyer, that buyer can walk from that transaction up until the date of closing. What if they walk? because you did not provide them with a Q&A sheet because you don't have one. You have a problem. No case, but I can see a liability event for the loss of that sale. When I bought the place I mentioned, um, I said, I need the Q&A sheet. I was a buyer. Oh, no, that's your job. No, 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 no. That's your job. So they put one together. It wasn't a very good one, but nonetheless, it was there. But I could have decided to walk right up to the closing date until I got that. So don't put your sellers and yourselves in the position of not having them on file. And you have to update it annually as assessment amounts change and certain added restrictions come into place that requires disclosure. Let's talk about insurance. 
Insurance is a definite hotbed item these days. This, do you need something? Yes. Is anybody driving a Hyundai, gray Hyundai? Yeah, you're blocking me. I need a leave. Thank you. The section in the law is 718.111.11. And let me tell you how the statute was um, designed beginning 2004, but pretty much substantially rewritten in 2008. And I was fortunate to be part of the 2008 drafting effort. I wish I was involved with more than just my piece. There were three arms, if you had that many, dealing with the same statute. You had uh, the Florida Bar was dealing with it, and I was on that committee. You had CAI that had its own effort, and you had one attorney, I won't mention his name, kind of was on his own. They weren't coordinating the way they should. So the bar bill did not come out quite like what we were hoping. But here's the theory. If you're required to insure something under the statute and you have to carry property insurance by law, that's level one. Level two is you repair it as an association expense. And then everyone shares in the cost like any other common expense. That's the general rule. There's some exceptions, but that's the way it was set up. The insuring obligation, you repair it, and it's a common expense spread to everybody. Now, on the coverage side, there is a firestorm, as I'm calling it, and I've kind of created it, that the insurance industry is so off the mark, although they're starting to wake up a little bit. And that is, when you have to carry insurance, the law has said forever, whatever your property is and like replacements thereof. That's been the law forever. But there was something else added in 08. All alterations and additions governed by, and it refers you outside the insurance statute into 718.113 paren 2. 718.113 paren 2. What is that statute? Material alterations, substantial additions to the property. That statute applies both to association alterations and unit owner modifications on the outside. Screen rooms and other improvements that are on the exterior of the building, you must insure for it if you follow the little language of the statute. The, in the insurance industry in 08 wrote a piece that went to all their agents saying that no, it's only if the association did it, not if a unit owner did it. That's wrong. The drafter, the, the lone wolf attorney, meant it to be association, but doesn't say it. I actually suggested to the bar, clear, clear it up, because it's a problem. No one would listen. So it hasn't changed. It's my opinion you need to value, as part of your um, full replacement insurance coverage, these alterations. Appraisers don't appraise them, because they're under that same industry piece that says it's not something you have to insure. I don't agree. I think the language is real clear. I'll tell you a catch-22 that just happened. One of the largest HO6 carriers, that's what you get when you get your own insurance on the inside. Um, I can't remember what the company name is. They're taking the position on those owner add-ons. We don't carry it on the HO6. The association has to carry it. And the association of masterminds say, no, no, you have to carry it because it's not under our responsibility, citing that piece that the industry came out with. Well, they both can't be right when the language is the same. 
I think the Airto 6 carrier is right here. So really pay attention to getting those valued and you need to train your um, appraiser that comes out every three years, you have to do one. Um, and your, um, make sure that your uh, agent is aware, or at least this is a potential. And the reason why you don't want to be wrong here, what if you don't insure for these add-ons? And because of that, the insurance proceeds that you receive are little or none. And the owner has to make that uh, re uh, repair ultimately with, the, with their funds but the association contracts. So if you have less money to throw at the owner because you didn't insure for it, you're going to have an unhappy camper there. Think about it. Or if you insure less than the co-insurance percentage. Co-insurance means usually it's 90, sometimes it's 100. If you insure less full replacement value than that coefficient percentage, let's assume you're at 90 and you only have 80% because you didn't value all these expensive screen rooms. You're short 10%. You're telling the insurance company we're not letting you make the premium you want to make, we're, we're, we're going we're to insure for less. That 10% is a penalty. It's called a coinsurance penalty. comes off the top of your claim. So if you're at that 10%, your claim's a million, you get 900, then minus deductible. So these are two good reasons why you really want to be talking to your agent and your appraiser. And they may disagree with me, but read the words. Just because some lawyer meant something doesn't mean it's binding. What you mean only helps if it's ambiguous. It's unambiguous. It refers to a law that covers owner alterations as well. Now, let's talk about opt-out. That's been a very big source of question. We want to opt-out. Well, what is opt-out? And that's something um, my committee put on in, into that bill um, because we wanted to give owner, the owner groups the ability to opt out of the third level only. Remember, the first level is you insure it. The second level is you repair it. And the third level is everyone pays. But if you want to make it, not everyone pays, but just the person who had the damage pays for a particular component that you have to insure for, um, you can get a majority vote of the owners to opt out of the sharing by all to put it on the owner with the damage. And where you had a lot of damage in Irma is AC units toppled on the roof or outside and were damaged. HVAC, which is the heating and ventilation and air conditioning uh, system, which goes from the compressor outside to the handler, the lines, thermostat. That's your HVAC system. You insure for that as the association. You repair that as the association. We're not talking about wear and tear maintenance. We're talking about casualty loss. A casualty loss is sudden, identifiable, Irma, a fire, toilet overflowed, and that day flooded the downstairs. That's a sudden, identifiable event. That's what we're talking about. And the last level, if you want to say, like the HVAC system, why should everyone pay to replace one person's compressor that went over? So that is the opportunity you have to opt out of sharing for any one of these expenses. So something to consider. Um, up until now, we had very few um, opt-out candidates, but it's starting to become more of a conversation because Irma created damage that was really 
a loss to individuals and not as a whole, and the association had to pay for all that. Now, let's assume the, the owner was negligent, and that negligence caused the loss. The association go after that owner to get reimbursed, but you have to prove there was owner negligence. Um, owner's add-ons, we just talked about you have to insure that. Very interesting the way I interpret the statute. I think more people than not are agreeing with me. Um, you still have to insure it for these improvements. You still have to sign the contract with a vendor to do the work, but here's the nice thing. You don't pay a penny out of your pocket. The owner funds the contract. No funding, no repair. So you don't have an outlay of one penny. Now, of course, whatever insurance comes their way helps um, set up a pool of money so they only have to come up with the difference. But again, if you're not insuring for these things, there'll be no pool of money, and you're going to have an unhappy owner who now has to fund a contract with a greater amount of money because you chose not to carry the insurance. And I can see that being an issue. Let's talk about borrowing of money. Is anyone here in the process of obtaining a bank loan line of credit um, where you secure the assessment monies coming in? Raise your hand. I bet you more have it than, uh, or any contemplating borrowing money? Raise your hand. Okay, well, you've probably gone to at some point. Um, the way it works, it's not a mortgage. It's not a lien on units. People think it's, oh, you've leaned my units. No. What's secured is your assessment income coming in. Now, there's certain things that you cannot secure, and I argue with banks all the time, to make sure that the collateral, that's what they're securing, doesn't go too broad and create a statutory problem for you. But when you are looking at getting a loan and you have a term sheet or a commitment letter or something that comes from the bank that they're asking you to sign, have your lawyer look at it first. Because I found when I, I'm called at the very end, oh, we need the lawyer's letter. Well, thank you for asking me at the very end. Uh, let me see what's going on here. Lo and behold, you need a member vote to borrow, or you can only borrow for certain subjects, and this loan is outside that list of subjects. You're going to have a problem. Don't you want to know that in the beginning? Especially if I'm being asked by the bank to give an opinion that everything you're doing is right. When I haven't even talked to you, you have to see whether you are doing everything right. And then once you have the commitment letter, what you said there, you're stuck. The loan documents are going to follow the commitment letter. So you need to get counsel involved right away to guide you in the process. Um, financial reporting. As you know, you have to have a financial statement done annually, depending upon your total amount of income coming through the association. The statute creates a levels of reporting. The larger, the higher form of accounting called an audit. In a lower range, you have a review. And in the lowest range, well, actually the third level, um, you have a compilation. And then the last level is a money in, money out income and expense statement. Um, if your documents, however, mandate an audit, guess what? You have to do an audit, even though the statute might let you do something less, because your documents are mandating that you do something. And you could, if you choose, 
um, to waive financial reporting to a lower level, because the statute says, all right, you don't need an audit, but you have over $500,000, so you have to, but you don't think that complete an, uh, financial review as well as the cost associated with it is worth it, you can get the members to agree to waive down what that requirement is. It's the same vote as waiving reserves and transferring reserves to other purposes. But if your documents say you must, the waiver in the law doesn't apply. It's a must. I like to amend, we'll be talking about some amendment opportunities, to amend to get rid of the audit reference and say whatever financial reporting is required by the statute as amended from time to time will be provided and that way you're totally governed by the statute. Uh, any questions before we move on? Well, I was on 9 through 13, and, and I don't know exactly. I'm picking certain powers. I apologize to tell you exactly what page each power is listed. And sometimes I'm adding things that are not in your outline. So just take notes in that general area, and then when you read it on your own, you can match it up. Yes? Yes. Well, that, I mean, the issue is going to be is the uh, owner somehow negligent. Like, the biggest problem in Irma was rusted hurricane straps. So that, to me, is owner negligence if, this is a big if, your documents support owner maintained. Just because it's up there and it benefits the owner doesn't mean the owner maintains. You may think that's what it says, but not always. Let me give you an example where it's not. Where's the compressor? Either out on the roof or adjacent to the building. That's not when the boundaries are your unit. Remember, your unit's in airspace. So it's outside the unit, so it's in the common elements. What if they're not a limited common element? Because in order for an owner to be responsible to repair a limited common element, it has to be defined as such, the words limited, common element in your documents, that legitimizes the maintenance obligation put on the owner. However, if it's not a limited common element and just a plain old common element, as you probably know, by law, only the association has that responsibility, not the owner. So you may have to amend your documents if you have under the maintenance section, owner maintains um, air conditioning system. Um, and it's out in the common elements, you should amend to make it a limited common element to legitimize the responsibility you're placing on the owner. Without that, and there's uh, two cases at the state level that have held that's a problem. So I've seen a lot of cases where it's outside, um, not a limited common element, and the maintenance section puts it on the owner. That is to be ignored. The association has to step in. You need to amend. Hmm? You define it, then you have to define it. Okay. Right. I understand. But as it is right now, if it is a You're mix and matching. Right. Don't mix and match what you have to ensure and who ordinarily maintains. Wear and tear maintenance is separate from insurance. Okay. Don't put them in the same breath. They're not the same. In fact, the insurance law says if it's an insurable loss, 
you stay here. If it's not an insurable loss, get out of this statute and go to your documents. So in trying to find whether an owner was negligent to get that money back from the owner, did the owner do something wrong, i.e., was there a maintenance function that was breached? But if the maintenance function really lies with the association because your limited common element language is missing, then you should be doing those straps. You should be doing uh, everything else. You need to amend in your case to make that legitimate. Yes? Well, if it's, if it's association maintained, of course, yeah. no question. If it's owner maintained, it's kind of up to you. That's a personal preference. If you want to do a spot check, particularly um, maybe in March, April, sufficiently ahead of the storm season, and if the owner does properly do maintain those things and it's legitimate, um, you want to write to the owner saying um, there's some deficiencies here. One, you need to take care of it, but if that's the cause, of the AC toppling, like happened in Irma, then that's considered your negligence, you're on notice, and we're going to seek to re get reimbursement from you. Because you made us have to do that repair. Okay, there you go. Yes. <laughs> well, ha you have to have it as part of your official records. Um, it's, it's, it's in. Um, I think it's in 718, the 500 series. I don't remember exactly what section. Um, uh, I would recommend you have your attorney prepare it for you the first time. And we don't charge much to do it. That way you know it's right. Because here's the thing. What they want the buyer to know without having to rifle through 100 pages is certain summaries of things that affect their unit, provision your documents that put an obligation or restrict uses on the unit, like leasing. Um, so in that, or, or uh, and then specifically all the leasing restrictions. If you're not complete because you do it yourself and the buyer gets a Q&A sheet and relies on that as complete and now doesn't follow the rules and they say, well, I didn't see it on the Q&A sheet. Well, it's in the declaration. Well, but your summary is too light. Could an owner say, I, I'm allowed to be bound by your Q&A sheet, not the documents? I don't know. No case. So that's why the Q&A sheet should be prepared by counsel. Annual update is easy. As the maintenance fees change, as at the end, you have to put new numbers. If there's a lawsuit against the association with potentially over $100,000 of exposure, maybe that happened since the last Q&A sheet, that goes on the bottom as well. If you add any restrictions on the unit's use, you have to add it to the restrictions in the front part of the sheet. So you can easily update it, although I'm asked to update here and there too, but the initial preparation, I recommend be counsel, not your managing agent, and don't try on your own because you don't want to create a liability issue. I'll take one more question before we go to the next. Yes. Yes, yes, because you can waive the statutory vote, but there's no waiver opportunity if your documents say you have to have it with a period. So you're not required by statute, but you are required by documents. So when you, you need to amend out that annual audit requirement, 
and defer to um, the law on the subject as amended from time to time. All right, we're going to go into elections. How many people here uh, have an election coming up? How many have had their election already? Okay, let's see how you did. Um, look at your bylaws. However, if you have documents predating 92, they don't cover the election procedures that occurred then that exist today. To me, that's retroactive. It applies no matter what. So some of your documents that are older, you ignore. And you really go by the statute. Now, if a director is more than 90 days delinquent in paying any monetary obligation to the association, anyone, that director is off the board. Automatically abandoned office. There's no resignation, there's no acceptance. It's automatic. Day 91, they're gone. And now there's a vacancy to be filled by the board. Now, as you know, if you have a no contest in the election, you have more vacancies than people whine to run, which is usually the case, you don't need ballots. You still have an election, it's a non-balloted election. You announce the winning candidates at the meeting, they're in. Um, if you have a contest, obviously, then we're gonna talk about in the second notice, the balloting required. Now it doesn't matter if you don't have a quorum at the meeting. Unnecessary, and we're starting on page 14 for those still looking, um, as long as you have a 20% return of ballots, that's enough to seat your board. You don't need to have a fuss with a majority quorum. Now obviously if you're doing other things at that meeting like amending documents or other subjects, yes, you need a quorum and probably a lot more than that to make it pass. But for seating the board, you don't need a quorum. If there's no contest and no quorum, you announce the names, they're on. Uh, as you know, there's a first notice and that first notice is um, 60 days ahead of the meeting, and that's where you're letting people know that there is an um, election coming up. Here's a date, time, and place. You have until day 40 before the meeting to tell us in writing that you want to serve on the board. Any written indication from the owner is good enough. They then get on the ballot if they, if they give it to you by no later than day 40. Now, if you have um, a contest, then with the second notice of the meeting, you need to send out the inner outer envelope system. I'm sure you've dealt with it. Um, there's certain requirements in the rules. The administrative rules that govern condos contain most of the restrictions, so that's the place I look before I look in the statute. And what you do is you send an, um, alphabetically listed names of people who have indicated wanting to run, and by day 35, they can send you a resume. It's got, it can't be more than a page, one side. They can have small print. It could be nasty. It could be pointed. It could be condescending, and it could be attacking. That's okay. You can't edit it. You have to hand out that, you know what, to all the owners because this person put in that resume. And then for the second notice, unless your documents have a longer time frame, and the old law years ago was 30, now it's whatever your notice provision says, which is typically 14. 
If your documents say 30, you have to give 30. If the documents say 14 or say nothing, then you're at 14. Uh, you cannot comment in the package on the candidates. You can't say, these are good, these are bad. No. <laughs> yeah. But you can privately campaign on your own personal letterhead, not officially from the association, or even there's a case to say, the board can do a mailing, but it can't be with the package, because it's unfairly influencing people when they read it all together. No commentary, um, no endorsement, no criticism. Outside that process, yes. In this notice, no. Now, something interesting, I was at a meeting last night where there was a tie for third place, three-member board. And um, the two people, uh, there's a statutory process for having a runoff election, but I like to turn to the people who tie and say, well, who wants it, who doesn't? <laughs> Turns out neither wanted it. <laughs> and the next two, which they didn't win, they withdrew their candidacy, but too late. You, have to, you can't withdraw your candidacy. Uh, you can do it up to the mailing of that second notice, but in, t in writing. But after then, they're on the ballot, and they could win. They didn't win, but they didn't want to be on the board because they withdrew their candidacy. So really, they ended up with a two-person board. But one of the ties says, OK, I'll do it. So how do you get her on? The board will meet, fill the vacancy, because there's a vacancy of one. That's how that works. So turn to the candidates first to see if they want to resolve it, whether it be drawing straws, flip a coin. You can have it. You, you can make the money and have the aggravation. I'm going to step aside. That's what happens. Uh, any uh, questions on elections? Yes. Well, and if you don't have a quorum on the board, and um, any owner could write to the board or the association, whatever mailing address there is, and say, you have 30 days to assemble a board. If you don't, I'm going to go into court and um, ask for a receiver that's going to act as the board, which means you can be paying a receiver fee, you're going to pay a management fee, so they're going to have a management company, usually someone different, and you, the owners, are going to pay well. When that becomes evident, believe me, people will step forward. You'll have your election. Then you wouldn't need the receivership, or you can end the receivership once the board is now elected. The purpose of the receiver is, goes away. It's not a receiver for other purposes other than to run an association that has less than a quorum on the board. In your case, zero would be less than a quorum. Um, one thing I want to cover about board number. If your documents and old ones do, you have a range of three to nine, or not less than three. But it doesn't tell you what that number is. How many directors are supposed to serve on that board? Anyone make a guess? Five. Why? Because the statute says, in the absence of provision of the bylaws on board number, you default to five. And there's several arbitration cases, about five or six of them, that held when there's a range and there's no meaningful way to determine what that number will be in the range, you're at the statutory five. Now, some documents may say three to nine, as determined from time to time by the members. Well, now you have a member vote that can set the number. But when it's just a plain out range, or not less than, 
and no way to know what that number is, because it doesn't tell you, you're at five. Keep that in mind, you may have a lot more five-person boards here than you think. Let's go to official records as the next topic on page 16. General retention for official records is seven years. The statute lists in 718.111.12 the official records that you have to keep, generally seven years, meeting records one year. However, I recommend or assert there's certain types of matters that you should keep historically forever. If you have a member vote to do something, you want to hold on to those records pretty much indefinitely because what if there's a legal action or an arbitration case questioning the votes you had and you don't have those records, you're going to trade on people's memories. And memories could differ at a meeting. They can have a different version of what they think happened. So who's going to win that one? Who knows? That's why it's important to keep historical records forever in case you need it. Now, the biggest, the biggest two areas that the state gets complaints is financial, including budgeting, and official records. That's their two pet peeves. Because a lot of times, owners ask to see records, and boards want to be less than fully accommodating, maybe because you don't like the person or they're a nuisance, and you want to treat them worse than maybe you would treat a friend. Well, everyone's a friend when it comes to official records. Got to treat them all the same. Within five working days of a written request, and it could be in any form of writing, even an email, as, as long as you know the email address matches that owner. If it doesn't and it's not signed, you can ask for evidence that that person did sign. So once they get it, within that five days, there's what you, you need to respond. You need to respond, and I like to respond item by item if they're asking for five different items because it may be something that you have, so you say, come and get it. Uh, it may be something you don't have, and you know you don't, and you say, not available, because not, we don't have it. Or it could be one of those excluded, which we'll talk about, items, because they're not entitled to certain things, so you identify that. And then they make an appointment with you to come in. What you probably want to do is establish rules, and the board has that prerogative under the statute, on limiting or regulating the subject. Like, what are you going to charge per copy? Do you want to require that the inspection occur only during business hours? Um, I have one where people wanted to see it on the weekends and after 6 because she works. And the client says, I don't want to have to stand there all night and uh, uh, during the weekend. said, well, you don't have any rules, so you got to provide it. If they had a rule, business hours only, then you can stand on that. So you do want to have rules, but very interesting, what if someone says to you, I want to come in to inspect records, and by the way, it's an inspection. You don't have to mail stuff. You don't have to email stuff. You can make them come to the site, and I don't care if they live in Hawaii. You make them come to the site. You don't have to, but you could, because it's a right of inspection. Then they identify what they want copied, then you charge per page for the copies. Um, but what if I want to be there with my attorney. Well, the law says the owner or, O-R, important word, authorized representative. What does that mean? One or the other, but not both. So you can say one or the other, but not both. If you want to be accommodating, you could, but you got to watch the process. You can't just say, go to town, and you, you go out at the pool. 
you have to be watching them because you don't want them to be putting things in their pocket, ripping things up, and then you don't have the records you thought you had. You have to babysit. You can't charge for it. You know, I mean, if your managing company wants to charge you, that's your expense, not the owner's. All the owner pays is per copy, the copy charge you've established. Now, if they want to bring in their own portable device like an iPhone or some other way of um, taking pictures of records, they're allowed to. You can't stop it. That's their right. But if after 10 working days you have not provided the records, there's a presumption, which you can contest or rebut, that you're willful. Willful noncompliance creates a statutory penalty of $50 per day times 10 days equals 500 per record. That could really add up if there's a lot of records being asked. And sometimes they ask, I want everything the law lets me have. Fine, there's the 15 cabinets. Have fun, go to town. But we're going to talk about what should not be in those cabinets that people can get to in a moment. So you don't want to put yourself into a potential penalty. A lot of owners are, are aware of that penalty and will trap you, try to trap you being late. And if you can't rebut the presumption you're willful, I mean, if there's a really compelling reason that you could not have avoided, and it gets on to day 12 or 13, you're going to be okay, but you're going to be in a, a piece of litigation to prove that you're right. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you have to have the Q&A sheet on file along with your original documents. You also need the year-end financial statement most recent. That's another document that goes from seller to buyer. Until the buyer gets it, the transaction is voidable. And you never want to, if you have a hard contract, you don't want a technicality for that buyer to get out of your contract because you didn't provide records. It's your job to ask the association as the seller, but the obligation of the association to have them on, on, on hand to provide it when requested. Let's talk about the difference between a lender questionnaire, which I'm sure you know about that very nasty multi-page, they're asking about everything including um, you know, where your children were born, and the very top says, what's owed on the unit? Well, what's owed on the unit is not really a lender questionnaire question. It's part of what's called the estoppel certificate. Is anyone not familiar with what an estoppel certificate is? That's where the statute now tells you what has to be in there. It's about five times as much information as in the past, because there was no form in the law before. And that tells the lender uh, a lot of things, including what's past due, uh, any open violations, there's a lot of different things, insurance information, a lot of the things that the title industry that put this bill through, they were the major proponents, wanted to see in these questionnaires. Anyone who is not following the statutory layout needs to get with counsel because there's a format you have to follow. We do our own estoppels when it's a collection account in our hands. We do a lot of assessment collections. So when it's one of our accounts, we do it. Whatever the association has to give to us, we have a schedule so we can attach it. Um, but you can charge for that. So this is a, an opportunity to make money. But the, stop, the lender questionnaire that goes beyond the money part is optional, not mandatory for you. Now, that buyer is not going to end up buying and that seller is not going to be happy because that's the only way that transaction would have happened because this, this happens when there's a mortgage 
And if the lender won't lend because the lender questionnaire wasn't completed, that buyer will go away, that seller will be unhappy. Will they go after the association? Possibly. But I think you're okay because the law doesn't require that you have it. It's only this top of certificate. And you can charge for both if you're doing it yourself, but you want to get some guidance so you don't get yourselves in trouble, especially if you're doing your own estoppel certificates and you're not following the format in the statute. That could be an issue for you if you don't follow it. Let's talk about the off-limits official records, the excluded non-accessible official records, which means what I'm about to tell you, you have to segregate those records separate from those 15 cabinets in a lock and key non-accessible area other than the board members and managing agent. The items I'm about to tell you now, anything from the attorney that's privileged. And I usually mark when it's privileged um, very boldly, so you know that's one of the things that don't go to the, um, the person asking. The aunt says, I want to see all correspondence from the attorney. Well, if it's privileged, they don't get it, so you keep that separate in a separate legal file. If it's not privileged, they get it. Anything you get in connection with the lease and sale approval process is not accessible, all of it. The application, the references, um, anything whatsoever that comes in in connection with that process, the background check, the credit check, that cannot be made available to owners. That is considered private. That's part of your other cabinet, so I recommend you have a unit file for every unit, like you will have in the 15 cabinets over there, have a dummy set, and in those files goes these non-accessible items, because if you give in a records request, something that's excluded, you can pay the piper to the owner who felt his or her privacy was invaded. People now know I have a disability. We'll be talking about that later. And now I'm embarrassed, so I'm gonna go after the association for punitive damages and all sorts of liability. So on these excluded items, keep it separate, lock and key. Um, any personnel records of association employees, including disciplinary, Payroll, health insurance, I mean, you do have some HIPAA issues running through here too. That's not accessible. Um, record, medical records of owners. And I submit medical records of anybody because of HIPAA laws. Even though the law only picks on owners, to me, it would be other residents as well. That gets kept separately in that particular unit file, the separate cabinet. And then the personal identification items like social security numbers, driver's license numbers, credit card numbers, email address, unless they agreed to, in writing, to take email notice. Well, obviously then, you're, they've agreed that's part of the public domain, they're entitled to it, but without that, it's private. Emer telephone numbers, we'll talk about it directly in a moment, but general rule, no telephone numbers, no emergency contact information. Only the address the owner gives you for notice. So if they have another address up north, but that's not the address they use for notice, you do not disclose the up north address. It's the used for notice purposes address is what they're entitled to get. But if it's other than that, they're not entitled to have that information. Now the statute permits you to have a directory. The rule's a little bit different. You get to put telephone numbers. Unless the owner writes to you say, no, I don't want it. 
So it's kind of the reverse. But I think the better way, if you can do a directory, is come up with um, a, a common sheet of the different piece of information you would, would put into the directory, send it to the owners, have them check what they want to have in there. You put what they've asked, you'll have no unhappy campers. If you don't, you may have someone upset that you're giving a number because you don't want a disgruntled owner to get a hold of this and start emailing everybody in the community um, about what's going on wrong. So that's something you gotta, if it's directory, it's one thing with permission. Uh, another item is anything that you have, like passwords, any software, um, licenses, things that are um, uh, unique to the association. We're not talking about the management company now that may have it, but these are things you don't give out to owners. Obviously, you don't want them to have passwords. That's the last thing you want them to have. Any questions on, on this before we move to the next? Yes. Jim, uh, suppose your documents specifically state that uh, the only way a records request can be made is by certified mail. I don't think that's valid. Well, let's see. I think because the statute says um, in writing, I don't think you can curtail the method of writing. I think the statute envisions pretty much everything. Now what you could do is, and I've had an association just did this, um, they didn't want an email to be used by individual directors because what they, people do is, they send it to the director who's the least involved, who may not give it to the people who are, that starts the clock there. Uh, so in this one, we dictated this is the only email address you can use. We didn't say that's the only thing you could do, and the only physical address you can send things to will be here, not some board member's home, but to the association office. But any method of writing within those confines will be permitted. That's a, a recommended policy. You can put that in writing because the law lets you do that. Okay. I wanted to ask you earlier about the owner address. I just want clarification mm -hmm. on the item. What about hurricane shutters? Owner installed. Well, I'll tell you what's very interesting about hurricane shutters. Um, the material alteration section that throws you to 718.113.2, that doesn't address hurricane shutters. 113.5 does. And 113.5 says added shutters are not a material alteration. But it's not in 2, which is the place where I would like to see it in. It's in 5. So do you read 2 and 5 together? and argue that um, hurricane shutters are not a mature alteration under five. So under the statute, you don't have to have it. Um, I think that's going to be um, kind of a close case. I don't know what the industry's position is on them. I know a lot of associations do um, insure for it. Because if it's a mature alteration, you have to insure for it. But if it's owner added property under the last subsection N, as in Nancy, you still have to carry the insurance, I believe. You still have to um, coordinate the re repair by contracting for the replacement or repair, but you don't do it unless the owner's funding the contract. Owner add-ons, even though you have to insure, even though you have to repair, you don't have to lay out one nickel out of your pocket. So you depend on the owner to pay to fund that contract. The owner says, I'm not. 
The answer is, and guess what? You're not going to have a hurricane shutter, not on us at least. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Any other questions? Yes? Has the division put together an estoppel form with the uh, current criteria in it, the new criteria, or are we still using our own? Well, no, neither. Uh, it's not in the rules because it's in the statutes. The statute is real clear. Does not, well, I mean, there's a few. Uh, it says, like, um, do you have any um, uh, approval process in your rules? Well, it's usually not in the rules. It's in the declaration. So, of course, the title companies who didn't consult with us in our condo committee I'm on um, use the word rules. So what I do, I, I ask two questions. Is it in the rules? Yes, no. Is it in the declaration? Yes, no. So I, I actually broke it out into two separate components, but the, the state, the rules will probably never have a form because the, the, the administrative rulemaking is not to be redundant with what's clearly in the statute. What's in the rules is over and above what's in the law. So if you've been using your stop certificate from uh, historically, it's now different and you need to comply with the different format. And there's a lot, I've done a lot of, um, um, estoppel certificate packages for associations with instructions how to fill them out, and then they never need to come to me again. That's something you may want to ask your attorney to give you a template, like a Word version with instructions on what to fill in, and if it's not an account we're handling, which means you're doing it and you can make money, good money, for doing it, a uh, little bit up front will make you a lot of money in the long run. At least that way you're following the format and the statute correctly. Uh, the verbatim language also says it has to be on the association's website. Okay, that, that is if you're more than 150 units. But if you don't have a website, then you don't have to create one for that. I would guess, this is a guess, I've never looked at that, that interplay there, that if you have a website, because you're under 150 units, but you've chosen to, then you would follow that requirement. If it's, you're more than 150 units, then you have to have a website, like it or not, and you're gonna follow that requirement. So, but if you're under 150, you don't have to have a website. You may choose not to, in which case, how are you gonna post something on something that doesn't exist? It's not mandating you have one so you can post one thing. It's if you have a website, you have to do the posting. That's a distinction. Whereas over 150, you have no choice but to have a website. Now, I don't know if there's still an effort to delay compliance by one year. Um, so it's not till July 2019. I don't know if that's going to pass, but I know there was some um, bill out there that was going to give another year so you could spend more time that you need to get the right assistance. Because don't try to do it yourself. Hire someone that knows something about websites. You don't want to inadvertently do something wrong and, and end up with uh, litigation by an owner that you're not following the law. So get assistance. Um, I don't know any attorneys that will do that because unless they're a web designer as well, but there are people out there. Um, I just got a, through my LinkedIn, a cold call. I want to uh, have you uh, be on your uh, link. And by the way, I do websites and for associations, so let me know if you need any help. So there are people out there that do that as a living. They're the ones you should go to. Probably not a bad idea to have someone like that, even if you're not required, you're under the 150, because you don't want to post something that could be a problem either. 
Any other questions? There could be anything that we've talked about today. It doesn't have to be just on this. Yes? Compensation uh, for board members. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, first of all, your documents have to let you do it. And I don't think as a member vote required unless your documents say so. I think it's a very bad idea. I'll tell you why. If, you, if I know you're getting paid, I'm going to expect a whole lot more out of you. The expectations are going to be huge because you're making even a small amount of money. Why undertake that degree of scrutiny just to make a few dollars? And first of all, will the members be happy about that? No. They're going to think this should be a non-paid, thankless job. That's what they expect of you. So I, I um, would recommend against that effort, totally. Any other questions? OK, we're going to end up on bids and contracts, and then we're going to uh, take a break and then continue on with the uh, fair housing portion. One power I didn't mention that does come into play in bids and contracts is emergency powers. Remember that term after Irma, where the governor declared a state of an emergency for 90 days, uh, and then you were uh, running uh, on a skeleton set of restrictions because the law lets you dispense with a lot of formalities. If two things exist, you're within the period and it's an emergency type repair, nothing else. Um, and even though the statute doesn't say so, as you're going to know very soon about competitive bidding, you don't have to get competitive bidding if it's during that time frame as long as it's for temporary emergency, like debris removal. Uh, keep a uh, roof from leaking. You have to put some um, temporary um, membrane or something over the roof to hold it until the permanent repairs are done. A lot of associations took that emergency powers and thought they can do anything and everything, no matter what it related to, and that's not the case. Um, I had an association um, who is a part of a master and the master levied a special assessment during the emergency power section um, for nothing to do with emergency powers to get around the member vote, which can be dispensed with under the emergency powers. And my sub-association objected, and I wrote a demand letter to the master. The master rescinded the special assessment. They were wrong, and they knew it. So if you're not sure what emergency powers you have, now obviously that state of emergency is long gone, but just check with your counsel. One phone call will maybe set you straight. You don't want to go off on a tangent and enter into a non-competitive bidding uh, project for a permanent roof because you thought you can do it during the emergency period. If you have a service contract, you have to have that contract in writing. It's required to be in writing. Um, if the total amount of the um, contract is more than 5% of the total annual budget reserves included, you need to get competitive bids. What does competitive mean? Two or more. If your documents say three, now you've got to get three. If your documents don't say anything about it, competitive means one company is competing with another. That, in my mind, is two. It doesn't mean you don't get more. The more, the better sometimes. But if there's only two, you can stop there if you choose. And you don't have to take the lowest bid. You could take the highest bid. 
you may feel the highest bid is more qualified for a lot of reasons than the lower bid. So, I mean, just because you're trying to save the people money, sometimes saving people money costs you more in the end when there is a problem because a vendor cannot perform properly. Now, let's talk about contracts between directors or officers and the association. Like a director has a janitorial company, says, I will do the janitorial here, I own the company, and I'm going to charge you half the going rate. Sounds good. Well, this year, last year created a major snafu. You have two provisions in the law in the same bill that do not jive at all at all. One section provides, and it's 718, this is not in the outline, so that's probably why you're not finding it, 718.112, um, to Pism Peter. 718, oh, it is in there. Even, it's there. Wonderful, wonderful. Prohibits the association from entering into any service contract, period, and a sentence, don't ask, don't tell. That's it. Unless the director or officer owns less than 1% of the equity in the company. Well, that's never the case. It's going to be your company or it's not going to be your company. So this statute says no allowed, period. Where 718.3027 in the outline does allow such contracts under a limited basis. Which one controls? Nobody knows. <laughs> How can you take two provisions? One says no, one says yes with limitations, and how do you put the two together and make them jive? You don't. So I understand there may be some uh, legislation this year proposed that's going to kind of deal with this uh, um, direct conflict and perhaps defer to the later one where it's allowed under limited circumstances. Moral of this story is, do not have a contract with a director officer in the association until the statute is clarified to make it allowed. Any questions before we take a break? Yes? No, uh, okay. What if an owner wants to be hired by the association? The law doesn't regulate that. However, you've got to deal with things like workers' comp. Because if you have someone who does painting of the building and maybe a little roof patching here and there, and they're up on a ladder and they uh, fall and get hurt, guess who's going to be sued? The association, because it happened on association property. So you want to get with your agent, like Trevor, and say, how do we protect the association for those kind of operations. Even though it's volunteer for no consideration, that may or may not uh, be enough, but that's a call to your agent. Um, I'd like to make sure that person has workers' comp. And um, now if that's the only owner of the company, uh, workers' comp isn't needed, and you're going to be okay. But if it's just an owner doing it for himself or herself, just as an individual, then um, I think you've got to make sure you have um, workers' comp. But I um, invite you to contact your agent or you speak to Trevor during the break or after the seminar and ask his take, because I would defer more to him on workers' comp than I would myself. Um, Yes. And an election question. Uh, we have more openings than we have candidates, so we're not sending out a ballot. But we're not expecting that we're going to end up with a quorum at our annual meeting. So how do we do the announcement of who the... 
you, you announce without a quorum, you make the minutes reference, they were announced, you adjourn for lack of a quorum, you got a board. The purpose is not to delay a seating of a board. Now, the statute doesn't really say um, specifically that, but it's my interpretation that uh, that would apply. I mean, it, as long as you have a 20% ballot return, you don't have a quorum. But if you have no ballot return because you're not balloting, why would the seating of the board be delayed because you don't have a quorum? I, I'm, I'm kind of bending the statute a bit to be practical. Announce it. Who's going to object? Who's going to challenge the seating of those directors? If you don't, you don't like who was seated, why didn't you run? Why are you not a candidate? Actually, if you only have four and there's a, a vacancy, guess what? You want to be on her? You want to? Okay, there you go. Now we have five. Thank you. We're going to take a break till about five of, um, about 15, 20 minutes. How many here are not members of SECA? You need to be. I'm a, I'm a proud member. I have been for three years. Uh, the charge is so minimal, it's not going to dent your pocketbook at all. I think it's $75 or some oh, low figure. All right, 55 like for individuals. So um, definitely the, the meetings are on Saturday, other than certain events uh, like the, the forum. Um, definitely worthwhile. You definitely will, will learn. So for those who are not, an unpaid commercial there, you need to join. Anyone who wants to learn about our program, just contact us. And uh, we are taking new clients. And um, we have a lot of doc revisions going on now. And um, it's sometimes you can let it work over the summer. So you can tackle it with the drafts in your hands for the season. Kind of tough to get it done this season if you're starting this late. But at least for next season, uh, good, good idea to think about. Yes. 24th of March at the Hilton. It's, it's an all, yes, it's a, an all morning event. It's, you're, you're a multi-condo with one association, right? Uh, well, you want to look to see how the declaration is amended. Sometimes it's amended as a, as a membership vote as a whole, and sometimes only the owners in that building vote to amend. Um, it's, there's no rhyme or reason. It's whatever the developer's lawyer who found a form didn't really know what was in there. That's what happens. Because what's the developer's interest? They don't have to run the association. I mean, way back when, they were in and out in a flash. There was a while where it took longer. Now it's working quicker. So they're not attuned, not all uh, developer attorneys, to know the mess they leave behind. Well, I'll tell you something interesting mortgage holders. There is a shortcut procedure in 718 actually in 722, that allows you through an identification process that we have to identify who the people are we have to send to, and you send the amendment off to the mortgage holders, and they have 60 days to object. If they don't object, they're deemed a consent. So, and what's even nicer that was added in that law, which is probably the best thing in there, that an owner cannot challenge the failure of the association to get mortgage holder approval when required because only the mortgage holders have standing to challenge. Before that, if you don't get that mortgage holder approval, any owner can say, well, I don't like that restriction. 
you didn't amend this properly, so we're excluded, and you have a bad amendment, so we're going to do what we want to do, and we're not going to follow. So I've had some associations that just get the member vote and don't want to bother with the mortgage holder vote, which is something you might take a risk. I explained the risk of doing that, but there may be a benefit. And again, no owner can make an issue of that, only the mortgage holders who weren't given the opportunity to object. And by the way, under the insurance law, to the extent you're amending insurance to meet the insuring obligation we talked about in the statute, the law says mortgage holder approval is not needed if it's required in the document. So there's that, but for the most part, you may take a chance, get the vote of the owners, and not follow that part, but that's a dialogue you would have with whoever attorney is doing your, uh, that particular amendment. I want to cover one thing I didn't earlier before we get to um, fair housing. Special assessments. Here's what seems to be very popular, and I don't like it, but it's, it's, it's pretty popular. You have a special assessment, and maybe it's funding a loan. And what you do, and this is when there's a loan, you give people the choice. You can pay it off in full, so those prepayers are done. And those who need payment plan because they don't have the money to give a downstroke, they get hit with the interest factored flowing through the loan. That happens a lot. I just had a, com a conversation with um, a center state bank with um, directors in Vero. Um, and you had one person who really wanted to give that option. And I said, I would not recommend it. I'm going to tell you where your pitfalls are. One pitfall is, as you know, this is not an individual loan. The association is the borrower, not the individual owners. So the interest is an expense of the association to pay the loan. So what you're doing under the scheme is you're spreading a common expense, i.e. interest, on fewer than every owner. That's a statutory problem. All right. The other thing is, um, if you have the, the, um, a long-term special assessment, like running for three, four, five years, the length of the loan, there's a question under the statute, is that valid? Because the, the theory about budgeting is when you know next year you're going to have an expense, i.e. loan repayment, that's where it should go, not in a side-by-side -side assessment. Now, there's a reason why it's done because for marketability of units, a higher maintenance fee means harder to sell. But a special assessment, which has an ending time frame, buyers can live with better. So there is a, that piece there, but my concern is if you're passing on this um, interest expense on just those people, and what happens if the association defaults and you have to levy a special assessment? Guess who pays? Everybody, even the prepayers. And as a prepayer, would you be happy because the people paying on time didn't pay, so there's a default, so guess what? You now get hit again. You're not going to be happy, are you? I don't like this scheme. I think it's something you should avoid, but if you absolutely insist. Now, if it, when it comes to a loan, what they're going to need as a bank is something from me giving an opinion about something. It could be as harmless as you can borrow, 
I like those because I don't have to really address these side issues. Um, but sometimes I'm asked to give more information. And if I have to give an opinion that the collateral is good, and you're setting up this prepayment scheme, I have to speak to that being a question. Some banks will be okay with that. Some banks will say, look, if you can't write a clean, no exception opinion, we're not gonna fund this loan. The reason why I'm not gonna just say, fine, I'll rent the opinion without the qualification, is if you default and there's a problem with the collateral, I can get sued. I'm giving a representation to the bank. I've, I've become an insurer without a premium if you default and there's a problem with the collateral. But if I speak to the issue and the bank understands going in, I'm protected. And there's also a collection issue. Let's assume you go after someone who's making payments. And they say, well, wait a minute, Judge. You're making me pay interest, but not those people over there. Is that going to be a collection problem? Maybe. Now, there's a little bit of help, but it's not a lot. There's a state declaratory statement. It's in Ray Grover, it's not in the outline, um, that blessed and approved a multi-year special assessment and this prepayment factory interest. The problem is it was a one-page uh, decision. It didn't say why it's okay. They just said it's okay. They addressed none of the issues I'm mentioning whatsoever. To me, it was a policy statement from the division at the time that felt this was okay. But when I write an opinion, I'll refer to Ray Grover saying, although it's been blessed, it's not been adopted by a court, and courts are going to be control. So that's my out. And most banks are okay with that qualification, some not. So when I get started in the beginning like I should, I want to get with a lender, what opinion are you asking from me when it's all said and done? I want to see the extent of what I have to give opinions on so I know to what extent I have to be more involved or less involved in the loan process. I want to now go into fair housing, but I'm going to tell you first what we're not talking about. So I'm going to start by telling you what this seminar is not about, and then I'm going to talk to you about what it is. It's not thing to do with the ADA or the Americans with Disability Act. ADA does not apply to private housing communities. And by the way, I will take questions along the way. I'm going to stay truer to the um, outline, um, but I can get through the material. We have another 50 minutes um, with some questions asked along the way. ADA applies to public accommodations like schools and libraries and churches and restaurants and malls, things that are out in the public, not private housing communities. That's governed by the FHA or Fair Housing Act. ADA is not FHA, different uh, type of accommodation. Now, there are some possibilities where even a private community might have to deal with ADA. If you have a rental program um, where they come to the office and they place people, like a lot of mobile homes have it, home, mobile home parks, um, that could create ADA because the general public can come and go by the day or by the night. Um, if you have a clubhouse that is frequently used by outside groups, like the Rotary Club and men's club, stuff that has nothing to do with your association, uh, bingo from outside, though there's a bingo law, 
be aware that you are limited on what you can do in bingo because you have chapter 849 that tells you what you can and cannot do if you're going to have a bingo operation. Get with your counsel if you're doing bingo. I'm willing to bet you're not following the law strictly. But anyway, back. So if you have outside groups, that facility might be ADA must comply. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about Fair Housing Act. And there is three levels of laws plus administrative rules that HUD has put together. You have the Florida Fair Housing Act, uh, Chapter 760. Um, the federal fair housing uh, law, uh, the Amendments Act of 1988, that's the effective date of the law. And then you may have HUD regulations, well not may, you, you do, that helps explain the law. And then you have local law. Now you do have in Brevard County, it's not much, um, but you do have a, um, a fair housing ordinance, it's very limited. So pretty much you're looking at federal and state for housing laws that's going to govern you. Now, what is discrimination? That's what these fair housing laws are about. It means that you're refusing to make a reasonable accommodation, reasonable is the operative word, um, to make exceptions to your rules and your documents, which is necessary, that's an important word, to afford that disabled person an equal opportunity to use and enjoy the unit. Now, Disable is the PC way, not handicapped. So try to bring yourself up into the um, 2018. Uh, I think you want to refer to people who have um, the unfortunate situation to have a disability. That, uh, that's the, the right uh, buzzword. Now, disability uh, could be physical or mental. As long as it substantially limits any one or more major life activities, whether it be because you're physically challenged or mentally challenged, I think a lot of people are mentally challenged in condos, that's the problem. <laughs> Most of the owners. Right. Uh, I feel sometimes I'm a psychologist and psychiatrist, I'm sure you do too, um, which takes me um, out of being an attorney, but you have to be aware of people's thinking and sens sensibilities. So you have to know when you're getting a request. It can come from anybody. It can come from the owner, the tenant, a guest, anyone who's associated with that disabled person, a relative, and a living aide. These are all people who can request and, and I have a not so nice word for it, but testers. There's a, they're, they're fair housing advocates that the U.S. Supreme Court has given them the ability to have standing. Here's what happens. You get a cold call. I have a, um, a tenant who wants to rent. How, how old must that person be uh, before they have to, uh, young, when they have to have an adult accompanying them around the place? How young can you be on your own or when do you have to have an adult? And you give an age of maybe 18. That's a problem for you, by the way. That tester can bring a fair housing complaint even though it was a hypothetical question. They don't have to be real people. They'd be hypothetical, and they, they run businesses, and they get fees or compensation when you settle as part of their effort. And that's how they fund their not-for-profit uh, operations. 
So you never know when that call comes in. And when a call comes in, um, make sure it's not an admin that isn't aware. Because I had a fair housing case where the admin gave the wrong age. Guess what? Fair housing complaint. And what happens when there's a fair housing complaint, they don't just look at the complaint. They look at all your rules, all your documents. They're fishing for other problems. So that can happen. Now, the obvious disabilities are if you're blind, if you're hearing impaired. I mean, if you have hearing aids, it's kind of not sure. Depends on the extent of your hearing loss. Um, if they're bound to a wheelchair, uh, there's no question those are disabilities. You don't have to ask anything. Because it's obvious, pretty much, then they have to just show why it's necessary for the accommodation. But they don't have to show or let you know what that disability might be like. Um, they're not so obvious physical disabilities like MS or um, cancer or other disabilities that you wouldn't know unless they told you, as opposed to something that's obvious from the appearance of the person. Now, the ones that are typically the least obvious is the mental, psychological, and cognitive. Depression and anxiety are the big ones. Uh, do you know anybody who's not depressed or, or anxious? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I know most people are to some degree. And that's the big problem we're going to be talking about. And we're going to be highlighting that issue in the pet area very shortly. You can get a verbal request. You can get a written request. Now, service animals, although I use that expression throughout a little bit, that's really more of an ADA term. Because as a service animal, they have to be trained. And they have to have that pretty little red scarf with a certificate. That's not enough. You're not ADA. Um, they don't have to be trained in fair housing. It could be a mutt with no training. Okay? So there's no, it's just disability, necessity, you're done. So that's how it works um, when it comes to at least pets. Sometimes I write a demand letter, remove your pet, because it's not allowed, and in comes a response, uh, we have a disability. Well, then you stop in your tracks. And when you get a request, you need to hide your anxiety, OK? Because you're not going to like it. So you don't have negative body language. You don't have, wow, we don't allow pets here. Uh, you got a problem. That's a fair housing problem right there. Because you're discouraging them from exercising their federal and state rights. So you have to smile, even though you're not and say, we'll let you know as soon as possible, expeditiously. We will make it a priority. Then we're going to talk about some of the things you're entitled to get if it's not something that's very obvious. Now, obviously, if someone's blind, has a cane, and has a dog, I mean, you don't have to ask anything. You know everything. You know the disability, and it's obvious necessity. So some of them, you don't ask for anything else it's so obvious. Because when you ask for things you're not entitled to, you get into trouble. Okay, so you gotta be careful that you're asking for things you're not entitled to. There was one big case somewhere in another state where the association kept asking and asking and asking, and finally it went to um, a court case. Association got hit with a very huge monetary damage award, including punitive damages for continuing to ask. It was, I think, it was some with MS. It was in the papers, I don't know if you remember seeing it. So 
You can't just keep asking and asking because you don't believe them. You're not the doctor, you're not the patient. You don't know what they need. Now they may not really need it, and you know it's a fake, but you can't say it's a fake. It all comes down to medical providers. So if it's not an obvious disability, and, and by the way, let me tell you what is and is not a pet, no pet community. How many have a no pet community? Raise your hand. That's it? All right, so basically you allow pets, but you may have a limit on weight and number. So we're gonna get into that because that's also part of a fair housing accommodation. But if your documents say no pets period, then except for fair housing, no pets period, end of sentence. That means goldfish, that's a pet. Gotta be careful about your defining your pet provision carefully. But if it says no pets allowed without board approval, that's not a no pet community. That's a community that allows pets, but you have to get board approval. Huge, huge difference. So you wanna make sure you know what your no pet policy is. And I like, uh, I get away in pets like um, only small pets. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. If, the bigger you are, the bigger the dog, I guess. If you're tiny, you'll have a smaller pet. Um, household pets, well, that could be anything that is anywhere within how many miles? In Hawaii, a 1,200-pound hog was a permitted household pet in rural Hawaii. And the owners were not happy with Susie, who was allowed to stay. So I find there's a lot of areas that require amendment, and pets is one. But back to what can you ask? And I would basically suggest that you get to your attorney right away. And at least perhaps, um, and I think you should be considering um, a written policy on how to handle this, which counsel can help you with. And that way you have a protocol to follow so you follow it all the time. You have a script. And anyone who deals with these requests. So you're entitled to get, if it's not an obvious situation, a letter from a treating medical provider. Not just a doctor, it could be a social worker, it could be a psychologist. Um, anyone who is treating the individual that can verify the disability. And that that person, the uh, medical provider, is qualified to treat that person. If you have a letter from a podiatrist that my patient has depression, that's not a qualified opinion. Because they, don't, they treat the foot, not the brain. So that's a problem for them, and you can say, look, I need to see someone who, uh, who ha appears at least has the right license. I had a situation where the husband was a doctor, and he was a doctor talking about the wife's disability. That was good enough, because the, there's a license behind that opinion. Even though it's a biased opinion, so they can have their dog, but bottom line is there was an MD, did exist, he was listed, he was active, that was enough. What is needed, necessity, as an accommodation to alleviate the effects of the disability. So for instance, if they don't say why it's necessary, they have to amend the letter to say why. Not that it would be nice, the patient would like it. Why is it necessary? To, it's called connecting the dots. Disability, generally stated, is not to be that detailed. Here's the accommodation request and here's why it's necessary 
to alleviate that disability as part of the treatment plan. Uh, so that connects the dots between the disability and the need for the accommodation. So I mentioned um, about, now we're in the er area of um, pets. Um, you want to make sure that your governing documents are, um, are clear and that you truly have a no pet provision or if you have a limitation and the limitation is discernible like um, no, no greater than X weight. Um, if you want to have a vicious breed, you can have that in your, your declaration. I like to see it in your declaration, not your rules. But a vicious breed would be allowed if that's the particular dog that this person has that's subject to the requested accommodation. You cannot say, well, we don't, we're concerned that this Mastiff is going to bite people. A fear is not enough. Now, if what happens is someone has already been in the community and they waited a while to ask for the accommodation, but while they were in, in residence, this animal created a lot of problems. That might be a different situation. If that dog, Mastiff is running around biting people and now they try to make an accommodation, you'd have a reasonable basis to say no because it's an actual danger, not a perceived or feared danger, but an act, act, actually observed danger based on the experience factor of that dog already being in the community. But you can have pretty much any animal you can think of as an accommodation. I mean, you read about United Airlines and was, was able to say, put the foot down, thank you, someone is, um, but that's ADA, so it was a little different consideration about the peacock and United Airlines said, nope, you can't bring the peacock in here. Um, you want to check it down the hole, that's fine, but you can't have it in the cabin. Um, they were in the right. But that's ADA. Um, but that may be something you're going to have to allow. So you could have exotics. Um, you can have monkeys and horses and snakes and pot-bellied pigs and all these odd type exotic animals. And too bad. You can't stop it if the accommodation is properly made out. If someone has two pets and you only allow one, and that um, uh, the medical provider writes the script, I call it a pet prescription, my word for it, the need for those two animals in particular, you're going to be stuck with two versus the one. Now, if the reason for the second one is to be a companion to the first dog, that doesn't fly. Pets do not have fair housing rights. People do. And, and uh, you'd be surprised they want the second one to keep companionship to the first one. But if the doctor or medical provider writes it up right, they're going to get the two. Now, what if the dog is too big and you have a limit? That may be allowed too. I had a um, 25-pound weight limit in a condo, and this was greater than that and this person had a sleepwalking disorder and needed a dog of enough size to wake her up out of her sleepwalking, and a small dog wouldn't have done it. So I made a judgment call that that's allowed, and that exception was permitted. Now, you want to understand the material you get to know whether you're entitled to other information. Um, is there a specialist that you that's required to make that opinion, and this is not a specialist. 
Do you have to confirm that person is really holding that license? No, you might choose to, but no. Um, be careful what you do with any medical information you receive in connection with this process. As I mentioned earlier, under official records, that needs to be kept separately if it's owners. In my opinion, is any resident. You need to keep that separated totally from the main 15 cabinets of official records. You may have some, someone who is mobility impaired and needs a pet because it also has a mental disorder, maybe because of the mobility impairment, but they need a closer parking space, closer to the building or to the elevator. Are you obligated to find that person a closer spot? Yes, unless it's someone's assigned space. That's a limited common element important to the unit. In my opinion, although there's a debate a little bit going on, but you cannot, in my opinion, take away a real estate right enjoyed by an owner, not the association, by an owner, and give it to somebody else because they want it. If it's open parking, that's different. If it's a guest space, if it's a handicapped space and you only, only have one, the first one to ask may get that space. You can't say, well, that's for everybody's use. You can get yourself in trouble when you create roadblocks or impediments when someone makes a reasonable request. Um, if you're not sure if you got the right information, run it by your attorney. You want to acknowledge that you got the material and a determination is going to come shortly. Um, there's certain kind of things you could deny. What if there's an undue financial or administrative hardship? Someone ha is disabled and wants you to hire a, um, a lifeguard at the pool because they're concerned they may drown. Well, that's a financial hardship. You don't have to do that. Actual danger, and we talked about the um, vicious pet, um, that's a reason to say no. Um, here's the unanswered question. I, I'm part of a, a blog. I pretty much li watch, listen versus um, um, actually participate on two separate sites where you have lawyers. One site is all around the country, and the other one is Florida. But fair housing obviously is federal, so I get a lot of the uh, the ones under the site from other states. And the question is, how do you document the, um, the request that's, that is um, accepted? Do you do it at a board meeting? My opinion, yes, but you have to be careful how that resolution reads because that could be embarrassing to the person that you're talking about. But if you don't have something documented, even in a general sense, um, and then the next person comes by, no disability, and has the same pet. And they say, well, what about that one over there? Oh, that's a disability. Well, show me where in the minutes the board approved that pet, but you're not letting me have this pet. Well, it's not there. So you really want to get with your counsel. This is a lot of get with counsel, at least in the beginning, until you get an idea of what you can and cannot do, to discuss how you're going to document it in, uh, in a board resolution. You don't want to, um, it, you, you want to make sure that if you keep asking them for information, you're entitled to ask. You have the podiatrist writing the opinion and nobody else. Uh, and by the way, for a couple hundred dollars, you can buy an accommodation letter online. So there are a lot of deserving, but there's also some not so deserving people asking for accommodations.
So if they don't give you the information you're entitled to, are you home free? Not necessarily, because if they file a complaint and then provide the information, you're going to have an issue. But if they provide it, you're going you're gonna to agree to a settlement that's called conciliation. We're going to talk about that shortly. And you're going to resolve the matter, and you won't go very further, much further. Now, there's different ways a, a grieved disabled person or an advocate, um, they can file a HUD complaint. Um, if they file a HUD complaint, what's going to happen is the complaint will be referred to the Florida Commission on Human Relations that administers the Florida Fair Housing Act. They're going to do the intake and the evaluation, and they're going to make recommendations to HUD, and HUD, and and HUD will listen. So it's really the local investigating office and how strict or lenient they are is going to tell you how far you can go and how far you can't. Um, what happens when the um, state will do the investigation? They'll do an investigation. Um, they, may, they will offer in the beginning, is there a way to settle this? It's called, can you conciliate? Um, and I just finished up a very lengthy fair housing. It was a tester on accompanying age. I'm going to be covering that very shortly. Um, and turns out they looked at a lot of things. And uh, we ended up settling. Of course, there was a fee to be paid to the tester. And there was a class they had to take, and I administered the class, uh, similar to what I'm doing right here. And um, it settled. So more ca cases than not, if they go as far as a complaint, we'll settle in conciliation. If there's a way to conciliate, you're going to do it. Now, you do have the ability to go to your D&O insurance and ask for defense and coverage. And very often, they're going to come in, at least defend you. I had one not too far from here where it didn't deal with pets, but deal with dock construction. During Irma, uh, the docks were washed away because there were only three feet. They want to raise it to five, which is the code now. But they didn't, they didn't have to meet code, but they wanted to do the five. And someone didn't like the idea of a ramp now down to his, their boat. So they were complaining about not giving a physical accommodation, not pets now, but a property um, alteration accommodation by rebuilding that pier the way that people, those people wanted. So we filed, um, I got started, um, and I appreciated that there was a fair housing um, request early on, because. The sooner you identify that, the less problems you have. They sent it to the DNO carrier. A lawyer was appointed. I kind of helped in the background, but I was not in the lion's share worker, which means the association had to pay a lot less because insurance was footing the bill. The association won that case. <coughs> it actually went to a, a termination of no discrimination. So that, that those, and those owners weren't deserving, really. I mean, some are, but under the circumstances, they could have dealt with the five feet. It was some people like to prove a point and be difficult. There are people like that, right? Yeah, 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 too many. Now, it could possibly go further than just an administrative procedure like fair, the Fair Housing Boards. It, the DOJ can come in, but that would be an egregious situation. Um, there could be a lawsuit filed in federal or state court. And depending upon the violation, you can end up with punitive damages, actual damages, civil penalties. You can get an injunction against you to stop that practice. 
But the likelihood of you pushing it that far, unless it's a really good gray area, but more black for you than not. But I don't think I've ever had to go that far, although I've defended lawsuits because you don't have to go to HUD. You can go right to court. You have your choice as the aggrieved person. And these law there's lawyers that actually uh, have a form complaint that has all the different possible violations. And luckily, there'll be DNO coverage, most likely. Another reason why you want to make sure you have it. Um, and then um, they'll defend you. You cannot ask for more than you should. You can't keep saying, well, I need more, I need more, when you really don't need more, because you're really fishing to trap them to realize they're faking it. I wouldn't even try to play detective that way. So under the pet summary that I have in the outline, the first line of defense is your board or your managing agent, because that's generally where the request will come in. Recognize they're asking for some exception, and they're arguing for, if they argue ADA, pretend they're saying FHA, because frankly, you know what they want. They're just misstating the law that applies. You should have a policy in print, really, really important. If, how many people have a policy in print? Most don't. Rarely do they, but everybody should. Something you need to be getting with your counsel to help you with a policy so you have a blueprint so no one gets you in trouble. Never question the disability, at least not to the person's face. If you want to do it privately, make sure no one is going to rat on you because that can get back. So I would assume it's needed if the paper works in place. Even though you see, I have one example where uh, a lady was mobility challenge, supposedly. And she needed her significant other, it was like a common law marriage kind of situation, to be in attendance at board meetings and help her get up and down. He wasn't an owner, so an owner is not guaranteed, the, a non-owner does not guarantee the right to be at a board meeting if the board doesn't want it because it's open to owners, not to non-owners. And they didn't want this guy there but because she was implying the need, I immediately took that to be a fair housing accommodation request, and immediately we started the dialogue. Um, we ended up letting him take her to the meetings. Yet I was at a seminar, same seminar two days ago, and the president of the association showed me a video of the lady walking around fast in the grass, walking like she's on a, a, a speed walk, but that person can't get up and down of a chair. So we kind of knew it was probably bogus, but rather than put the association into litigation that you have to prove you're right, we, we made it, well, what's the harm? I mean, if he got unruly, which he did sometimes, they told him to leave. And she had to take her out, that's the, what he has to do. But just because you have an accommodation doesn't mean you have to be unruly. Let's talk about the service, the animal's conduct. Just because you have to give the accommodation doesn't mean they get a free pass on the behavior of that animal while the animal's in place. I had a barking dog case in uh, northern Palm Beach County, and um, so we had to go to arbitration. It was a, um, a, a pet accommodation case, and the dog barked all day, 
all night. The residents were up in arms. So we filed an arbitration case. We got the idea of going to the local um, jurisdiction, in this case the town, who has a noise ordinance that was being violated. They started a procedure under the threat of fines. So we had a full court press from both angles. They removed the dog. So they realized that just because you're allowed to have the dog, you're not allowed to do what you want regarding that dog. So you still have to be on a leash, picked up after. Now, if someone can't bend down, hmm, that might be uh, an out. Um, but that could be, that's one of the grays. Um, actual danger that you see, you can ask for a pet to remove because it's biting people. So the conduct of the dog does not get a pass. It's the body of the animal gets to stay. As I mentioned, vicious breeds, that's the way it works. Now I want to go into age restrictions. How many here are a 55 plus community? Okay, fair amount. Um, there's two ways to establish a 55 plus community. This is not specifically in the outline, but um, I want to give you a little bit of guidance here. Um, the law requires at least one person in each unit be in 80% of the units. One person 55 in 80% of the units. I like to word it differently. I like to word it all people have, all units have to have one person 55, but we recognize enumerated exceptions that will allow an under 55 situation to continue, as long as you're not below 80%, because that's your threshold to stay over. So, so um, you want to make sure that if you have the exceptions, and one exception I typically recommend is surviving spouse or companion. The last thing you want to do is be heartless and say, I know you're grieving, but you got to go. That's <laughs> a little heartless, isn't it? But if you have a one person 55 all with no exceptions, that means sorry grieving widow or widower, you got to go. So you may need to change that provision if you're strict as one person 55. I don't like the 80% one person 55 because that invites 20% of any all age that you want to have. So um, that means, 20, one second, 25-year-old couples can come if you're under the 80%, um, if you're at least 80% or over. So I like to do the all with exceptions. Um, air exception is sometimes uh, a recommendation. I talk about that with the board. Yes? This lady in our, our condo association is a trailer park, and she passed away, and she wheeled her house trailer to her son, and they weren't 55. Yeah, title holding isn't the issue. This is not a title holding law. It's an occupancy law. And I had the fortune... Back in 1987, I was a kid back then, like 26 years old, I went to Washington to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee on this very bill, 55 plus. And I was invited by Orrin Hatch to speak on the Senate side, and I actually had Senator Kennedy as the uh, chair of that day. Boy, I was so nervous. And because the, the, I was on, in the car, on the radio, they said, there's a new law that's going to not let you age restrict anymore. So I got a hold of the law with 60 words. It was nursing home related. If you weren't in a nursing home, too bad, you lose. Um, and I woke a lot of people up. It wasn't the perfect bill, but at least, and I went to every Sunbelt state that has large 
senior populations. And then I was fortunate to be invited back on the House side, but I brought another older person who testified. But, and we hit a lot of people. Claude Pepper was one of the ones. I mean, I know he's deceased now, but that was probably 90 at the time or 80. So we had a lot of um, legislators that were not aware that this is gonna affect large populations in their states. So, um, so if you're 55 plus, so the testimony, it, it was not designed for really housing that people own. It's more for rental housing because it was a shortage back then. And if a landlord had a choice, they would rent to an adult, not to children. Let's be honest, it keeps better care of the property. Um, so, but it, the way it was worded, it, it, it applied to whether you own or not. Now, I, I tried to get an amendment done, but Senator Kennedy wouldn't hear it, to exempt out all of you if it's purchased housing. But they said, no, no, it's not just rental housing, we want it to be all housing. So I recommend the one person 55 with exceptions. But if you're not a 55 plus community, because if you're 55, you can do anything you want by age. Pretty much anything you want, you can say you have to be 25 to be uh, unaccompanied. You can really set your, your rules on age because you have the right to discriminate. You're discriminating, but you have a right to. That's how it's, no, I'm not saying the bad way, because it starts out being discrimination, but there's an exception, it's called an exemption. If you're a 55 plus community, you're exempted from the no discrimination based on age. So let's talk about accompanying minors in the community. Um, the conciliation agreement I had, and it was unfortunate, it was in Palm Beach County, which is the worst place to have a fair housing case, because the fair housing office is way overduly overburdensome, overrestrictive, and they hate age restrictions. They're age neutral by blood. So I had to pull teeth to get to allow a, an age limitation at all at the pool. But I've, there were some studies done um, that drownings occur when you're under 14. So I got them to agree to 14 could be on his or her own as having um, enough maturity, but 13 and under has to be accompanied. You might get a little higher age out of maybe the state of Florida who does the intake, but if you have an age up like no minors without adult accompanying, which means a 17-year-old has to be accompanying, I can see that being an age, uh, a, a discriminatory based on age. Because you can't target children unless you're a 55-plus community. Let's talk about targeting children. No skateboarding. Well, who skateboards? How many here skateboard? Raise your hands. Okay, I don't either, okay? I bet you your grandchildren do, and your children might. Okay, but that's targeting an activity typically practiced by children. That gets you in trouble. So be careful, and let's talk about no diapers in the pool, no children with diapers in the pool. Okay, what about 90-year-old is incontinent? I mean, it's hard to say, but you start in diapers. What can I say, you know, what happens? But you can't, you'd have to say no incontinent persons because obviously a baby is incontinent and someone who could be in a much older age. That's to get around targeting children in a non 55 plus community. I guess that diaper joke didn't work, what can I say? 
Um, I won't do it again. This is my last. There could be a case where someone's asking for a modification to the property. That's what happened in um, the example about the docks. They wanted a different design of the dock area than everybody else had. And that's the one that they didn't prevail in. They, someone can maybe want a ramp to their front door so they can have a wheelchair get easily into the front door. Or they swim but need a chairlift. What's nice about these alterations and modifications, owner pays. If it was ADA, housing or the provider pays. But in your case, that's paid for by the disabled person, not by you. You don't have to spend any money whatsoever. Now, you have a right to look at the plans to make sure there's not a safety issue or a code violation and there's a permit obtained if required. Um, but if you get a request, verbal or written, you would need to um, realize that they're asking for a modification to the premises. And if you're not absolutely certain that is needed, um, call your attorney without making a negative uh, comment or gesture, because again, that can get you in trouble as well. Surprisingly, I'll take a question in a second, they don't have to remove the alteration when they leave, if it's outside. It stays, okay? Now, the person may, uh, the, the owner who buys might say, well, I don't want this rat to my door, so they'll, they'll take it out. But the chairlift's gonna stay probably, and anyone else could use it. But I would um, probably try to convince the person to take it, because it's a value, because what if you don't want it? You want to make sure they say, I don't care if you dispose of it, but and I'm going to hold you liable. Because when you take what they paid for, their property, and you throw it away, that could be a claim for destroying what they own. So I would get in writing that they don't care what you do with it, and then you have no liability. I mentioned parking spaces. Uh, they have the right to a closer space but in my opinion, cannot take away an owner-assigned space. And by the way, not every assigned space is a limited common element. If it's a limited common element, it has to be said so in the documents. We talked about that earlier. So if it's a limited common element, then um, that runs with title to the unit. If it's not assigned that way in the documents, then the board has an assignment plan and, and that can be done if you have the right language. But it, that may be different, because if, if it's the board assignment plan, you're not taking any owners right away. So then you would have to give an opportunity for that disabled person to have one of those closer spaces, because you're not taking away a real estate right of any individual owner. We're going to get now into uh, lease and sales and criminal background. If your documents don't use the words right to criminal background, I question whether you have that right. I had a case where it just said, like a lot do, the association is entitled to such other information as the board may reasonably require. Um, that does not mean right to a background check. And that's what we found out in arbitration case. We settled, and the owner submitted the tenant to the screening process, but their defense before we settled is, where is your right in the documents to have this? So I always like to put in documents that you have that right. I actually go so far 
is to give you the approval right over non-tenant, non-owner occupants that are going to be there along with the owner or tenant. So for instance, you have um, one person on the lease and the boyfriend, the girlfriend, or someone else is also going to be there, but is not a tenant. Question is, can you do you have approval rights over that other occupant? No, unless your documents say yes. So it's, as I'm giving you the idea of where you may want to consider some amendments in this area. There's no bright line test on when you can say no on a criminal background. There is no case out there that tells us anything. So I look at it, it's a kind of a touch and feel. Um, is it a conviction or arrest? I don't think, I don't care about arrest particularly, because if you have 100 arrests, maybe. But if it's arrest but no conviction, it's convictions. Convictions mean you did it. Um, how severe and how recent? If you had um, something from 25, 30 years ago, but you've been good since, that's not going to win. Um, if it's possession of marijuana, that's not going to win. Sale and distribution, maybe, but if it was during the teen years, but now they're adults, maybe not. So it's one of those touch and feel. Now HUD oftentimes comes up with what they call guidance statements. A guidance statement is just how HUD is looking at certain scenarios, basically to watch out. They've, they believe, and I think they're right, that people who are protected by fair housing laws, minorities, will tend to be treated less fair in the criminal system than others who are not protected. And therefore, you may expect a, gr a bigger rap sheet from someone who's fair housing protected than when someone is not. So they're warning you, be careful when you're, how you're looking at criminal, criminal background when it's a fair housing protected person. You need to be more careful in the rejection process. No, much, no different than um, you have an African-American uh, tenant that's been the worst violator going. I'm not picking on any race, I'm just giving you an example. And now they go to renew, and they said, no way. And I had a case like that that went to a fair housing dispute, but her color had zero to do with the problem. It was her and her children that were breaking all these rules. So we rejected the renewal, and we won. They found no discrimination because it wasn't the color of the skin. It was the behavior of the people. Behavior is different than color. Let's talk about credit scores. In my opinion, if you're asking for credit information on a tenant, stop it and stop it today. You do not have a direct relationship with the tenant, do you? Your landlord does. So why are you doing credit checks? Are you doing it to benefit the landlord and tell the landlord, you know, this person has a 520 score, do you really want this tenant? No. You don't even share it with the owner, usually. I would get away from credit checks from tenants, so minimum scores should not apply to tenants. But that's different to sales, because you have a direct financial relationship with the owner, i.e. payment of assessments. So I think there's a difference in getting credit scores of sales as opposed to tenants. 
An untested issue, which I want to leave you with a little bit of a, oh, no, that can't be the case. It's a good way to end. What about a group home or a halfway house? You don't want them there, do you? Why are they there? Therefore, treatment of people who had a disability. If they were, um, had a drug or alcohol problem, that typically will ruin a lot of your life, major life activities. And this is the doctor's plan of treatment. Get into a group home. One can watch the other for not falling off the wagon, if that's what it's called, even in the drug area. And the question is, is that fair housing protected? Nobody knows. I'm going to leave it that way. Uh, any questions before we end? Thanks for listening. If you could do us a huge favor and rate and subscribe, you can do it right in your iTunes app. Please shoot us an email if you have questions or topics, anything that we could help you with. Campcontact at gmail.com, C-A-A-M-P, contact at gmail.com. Thanks, and we'll catch up with you next week.